I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Coming up, I spoke with Dr. Eric Prather, a leading sleep researcher, who wrote about the solutions that he uses to help his patients achieve healing and restorative sleep, something many of us dream about. But first, let's take a look at some of the recent news in science. Last week, CU Boulder engineers shined a light on a common way to spread germs and viruses that involves the lidless public toilet, specifically the lidless public toilet flush. As you listen, picture a dark room where the flushing toilet releases a geyser of bright green dots. They go twice as high as the toilet, and plenty of the dots stay suspended in the air where they can float around and spread throughout the room. CU Boulder engineers used a green laser light and a camera to help people see for themselves the invisible water droplets and aerosols that burst into the air whenever a lidless public toilet gets flushed. CU Boulder engineer John Cromaldi is the lead author of the study. There's obviously the ick factor, you know, the fact that you've got the stuff from the bowl that's coming up. There's a lot of studies that have shown that Pathogens persist in the bowl for dozens of flushes after the pathogens are introduced. So from a public health perspective, it's, it's really important to understand this. Cromaldi has used laser light to reveal many mysteries in science and health. He runs the Ecological Fluid Dynamics Lab at CU Boulder, which has shown how odors reach our nostrils and how chemicals flow through turbulent water. For a flushing toilet, Cromaldi says the green laser light not only shows what happens when a toilet flushes, it also makes it easier to measure the speed and distance that aerosols travel. This might help plumbing and public health experts test new ways to design public toilets, disinfect them, and ventilate the room. The goal would be to reduce how many germs and viruses end up in the air during a toilet flush. And if you want to see with your own eyes a video of the bright green dots from a toilet flush, We'll link to it on our website. For How on Earth, I'm Shelley Schlender. Last week, I talked about a randomized clinical trial comparing the efficacy of N95 masks to surgical masks in preventing COVID in healthcare workers. Another similar trial, this one from Norway, just reported on the effect of wearing glasses to reduce one's risk of being infected with COVID and other respiratory viruses. Wearing glasses, such as reading or sunglasses in crowded public places, had no effect on COVID transmission as determined by PCR test. However, self-reporting from the 3,700 participants did suggest lower transmission of respiratory viruses. Now, this may sound good, but I want to make an important point about these and other studies you may come across. First, randomized clinical trials are considered the gold standard of human trials. This is because the human subjects are randomly assigned to one treatment group or to a control, that is, untreated group. This eliminates one source of bias. But many other factors can influence the validity of the results. For example, sample size. We humans are incredibly variable, which means you have to sample a lot of us to get a reliable answer. In the glasses study, which took place in Norway, the population is more genetically uniform, so a smaller sample may be okay. But consider that the outcome of respiratory infection was self-reported. This definitely introduces some bias into the study. 
It's also important to consider factors that may not be controlled in the study design. In the mask study, healthcare workers were followed in four countries, but 70% of them were in Pakistan, where community occurrence of COVID is much higher than in one of the other countries, Canada. In other words, healthcare workers were exposed to COVID not only in the study design, but at a much higher rate when off the job. The take-home message, take all study results with a grain of salt unless all of the underlying factors look good, or better yet, until the results are replicated. Crowther is a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the University of California, San Francisco, where he co-directs the Aging, Metabolism, and Emotions Center. A licensed clinical psychologist, he has helped hundreds of patients improve their sleep. In his new book, The Sleep Prescription, Dr. Prather describes the solutions that he uses in the clinic to regain normal sleep. In our conversation, Dr. Prather shares the science behind the simple yet effective techniques that can restore one's sleep. Welcome to the show. I'm speaking this morning with Dr. Eric Prather about his new book, The Sleep Prescription, which I must admit is a really nifty format. It's a seven-day prescription and part of a series of really well-written books, very accessible science, so good solid science, but really practical tips. So let's just launch into the science of sleep this morning, Eric. Absolutely. Can't wait. Okay. So why don't you start by talking about some of the drivers, like our internal clock and our circadian rhythm, because those are sort of basic to what makes all mammals want to sleep. Exactly. So, you know, we have two primary drivers that regulate our sleep. The first is, as you mentioned, our circadian rhythm, right? So our internal clock, all of our cells and organs have rhythms and is kind of driven by a master clock in our brain deep within the, the suprachiasmatic nucleus. And, um, you know, it it helps keep time, right? We have kind of environmental triggers that kind of drive um, our rhythms. Sunlight is kind of the, the biggest, what's called a zeitgeber that helps entrain our rhythm and uh, kind of governs kind of the alertness that we experience throughout the day. I mean, most people kind of feel alert throughout the day. And as the sun goes down, they begin to feel sleepy. Our brain you know, our pineal gland begins to secrete melatonin that helps facilitate that. Um, The second driver, uh, which is really critical in helping treat people with insomnia is called our homeostatic sleep drive. And this, I I, I think is akin to kind of a balloon that uh, kind of fills up throughout the day and it fills up with sleepiness um, until we begin to, it gets to like its optimal amount. And then we begin to feel sleepy. Uh, The neurochemical that we think it accounts for this is adenosine. So adenosine, right, is kind of uh, kind of the metabolite of of ATP. If you if you go back to kind of your organic chemistry, um, and uh, and uh, and so that adenosine builds up in the brain and kind of hits on receptors that then kind of bring on the feeling of sleepiness, and and so those things are often aligned but are independent in kind of regulating our sleep. But when they're well aligned with kind of your balloon getting really big. And it kind of well timed with your circadian rhythm that and and then you go to sleep, it kind of brings on this kind of nice restorative 
um, bout of sleep. So that balloon analogy is great. I think it, it makes it easy for people to understand that concept. And there's a couple um, related points that I wanted to talk about. Like, let's talk about caffeine and its effect on filling the balloon. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's a that's a, a great uh, kind of uh, thing to talk about in that context because the the chemical structure of caffeine is really similar to that of adenosine, and so that's you know largely how it works. So, you you consume ca caffeine, and it it competes with adenosine on those receptors in the brain, and so that's how you can maintain alertness, right? Because the adenosine isn't bringing on that sleepiness as it as it interacts with those re those receptors, um, but it also helps account for uh, the fact that, you know, caffeine has a half-life about, of about six hours. And so as it kind of drains out of your system, people will experience this kind of caffeine crash. That's because adenosine, despite the fact that it's being outcompeted by caffeine has been accruing over that time period. And it's kind of like it wallops you, um, you know, when the caffeine isn't there to kind of hit on those receptors. So I remember and maybe this comes from Matthew Walker's book, but I remember reading in some sleep book, and I'm I'm kind of obsessed with sleep, so I do read a lot of sleep books. <laughs> Same. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess you should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> I remember reading about this idea of a nappuccino, you know, have, yeah. a, have a little cup of espresso, which is, you know, a, a little lower than drip coffee in caffeine, and then take a quick power nap. And then you wake mm -hmm. up and you have a little boost of caffeine, but it maybe won't keep you awake too much at night if you don't have it too late in the day. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, caffeine naps are are a really interesting idea. I mean, there's so many things that are interesting about that. So like one, uh, it, 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 there's good science to back it, right? Like it's, um, you know, caffeine takes, you know, something like 20 minutes to, to kind of get into your system, begin to feel the effects. I think that's just an interesting thing in its own right, because I certainly, when I have my first cup, uh, sip of coffee, I feel like it works immediately, but that's a clear kind of placebo effect. But, um, you know, you can do that. And then if you, if you're able to time the nap appropriately, you kind of can get like a 20, 25 minute nap and then wake up and the caffeine's just starting to do its thing. And so you get this extra boost and, you know, people have lots of success with it. Um, it's not inherently bad. I mean, I think the issue around, you know, what it does to your sleep at night is, is a good one to consider and really has to do with the fact of, you know, does the individual who's doing it, do they already have sleep problems, right? Is there something that we need to fix in that way? Um, you know, because, you know, if people nap that kind of drains some of that sleepiness out of the balloon. And so, you know, you can't expect to kind of be able to make that up at night, uh, particularly if it's a really long nap. But, you know, if you're kind of looking for that boost, that's that's kind of an interesting way to to try it out. And I, I think it's it's one of those kind of generally innocuous uh, uh, experiments that people can do to see what works for them. Oh, that's such a good point. I really want to stress that, um, you know, as a as a geneticist, I see that one of the key things in life to explain and and work with everything is individual variation and everybody's different. And I just think that's such an important point that you just have to experiment on yourself and see what works for you. And that's a great thing about your book. You have all these different tips, things for people to try, see if they work. If not, go on to something else. I guess for this book, I, I kind of think of it, it's it's like a menu versus a recipe. And it seems to be more like a recipe that like these are ingredients that kind of produce a better quality night of sleep. And so, you know, like any kind of recipe, you can leave out an ingredient, but it might not kind of taste as well as good. 
And so, you know, that's just, you know, something to consider that it, it you know, certainly you can try these different things, but like at least the science uh, suggests that, you know, they, they work best in combination. Right. And going back to the science, I noticed that quite a few of your, especially your early papers have to do with the role of sleep and its effects on immune system. So since a lot of people are getting vaccinated right now, can you talk a little bit about how sleep affects the immune system cells and their response to vaccine? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, some of the like the early work and, and work that we continue to today kind of really focuses on the role of sleep and how it is important for um, kind of the development of kind of optimal immunity, in particular to vaccines. And so, you know, we did work um, you know, some years ago now, looking in the context of the hepatitis B vaccination series, where we measured people's sleep out in the world using kind of a research grade kind of Fitbit, it's called wrist dactigraphy, and, and then exposed them to the, the hepatitis B vaccination series. And we found, you know, pretty conclusively that people that were kind of short sleepers on average, and so this is kind of sleeping fewer than six hours, were uh, mounted fewer antigen specific antibodies, and were more likely to be left unprotected based on CDC guidelines uh, at the end of the vaccination series. And so now this has been kind of shown in, in other vaccines as well, including the influenza vaccine, both with respect to kind of when people are experiment experimentally um, sleep deprived, or when we measure sleep out in the world. And there is, you know, we're in the, we're in the currently trying to look at this in the context of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and that data hopefully will be ready to present in the next couple months. Yeah, and I love thinking about things mechanistically, and um, we don't have time to get into the whole idea of how sleep kind of acts as a, a clean-out system in the brain, that whole um, glymphatic system, as it's cleverly called, idea. But um, I think it makes sense for people to think that sleep is kind of a, a healing time for uh, brain metabolism, but how do you think that can connect to the immune system? I'm having trouble making that connection. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think firstly that like the sleep does lots of different things and we're still trying to understand it. I mean, I think the discovery of the glymphatic system um, is kind of a, like a really important piece to that in understanding, particularly the the role of, of sleep and um, protection against kind of negative brain uh, health related disorders like Alzheimer's, um, in, in the context of the immune system, it's true. We're really still trying to figure out like how, um, sleep is, uh, driving those changes, um, within the immune system. I think one of the things that has been found kind of most consistently is that sleep seems to play an important role in the redistribution of cells, um, within the immune system, kind of moving from the bone marrow out into the periphery and into lymphoid organs. And what they found in, in kind of sleep deprivation studies is that, you know, when people are under the sleep deprivation condition, uh, oftentimes things like their T cells are not uh, kind of migrated into their lymphoid organs. There's just more of them out in the periphery, which may kind of help explain why kind of the adaptive immune system doesn't work as well, uh, because the cells just might not be in the right place at the right time. Um, and, you know, how that happens is, is not necessarily clear. We do know that the sympathetic nervous system kind of innervates the bone marrow. We know that cortisol and other hormones play a role in, in kind of the circulating circulation and migration of these immune cells. And so, you know, I think as a, as a science community, we're, we're still trying to kind of chip away at that. But, you know, the end product 
of kind of the clinically meaningful outcomes, you know, the evidence seems to be fairly clear. It's just trying to figure out how that is happening is, you know, kind of something that we're all working on. Yeah, yeah, that's so fascinating. And that ties into what you wrote about stress and sleep and the effect of cortisol on antagonizing sleep. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that, because I think we all intuitively get that. But then we go ahead and we uh, subject ourselves to small amounts of stress late at night, like, you know, checking our email or our <laughs> text messages. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, well, you know, I mean, I think there, there, there are lots of things that can get in the way of a, a good sleep. I mean, stress is certainly um, a common culprit. I mean, we know that it drives the experience of insomnia, uh, you know, at least it's the kind of precipitant. Um, but, you know, like I think there, you know, with respect to, uh, you know, email and all those things, it, like the engagement of the brain is really what often gets in the way. And that's why it's so important to kind of make a clear transition um, to to uh, kind of bedtime and, and ensuring that you give yourself adequate amount of time to wind down. Um, and so, you know, I often suggest that people have kind of a, an alarm set where it's like, okay, this is like the cutoff from when you can do that last email and, you know, probably stay off of social media, do things that are kind for yourself and, and relaxing so that, you know, your body is in a better state. Uh, in, in particular, we're really trying to kind of amplify up that parasympathetic nervous system and downregulate kind of the stress response to which we know is important to facilitate kind of people letting go and, and kind of drifting off to sleep. Yeah, yeah. And I one thing I did like about your book, too, is that you include a lot of stories of patients that you've worked with. And in those um, case histories, you definitely stress that everybody's different and you have to work around different amounts of stress that might be tolerable. And in particular, like one um, one statement that you use about stress, be the lion and not the gazelle. Can you explain that for our listeners? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, this is uh, kind of uh, thinking about stress as a challenge versus a threat, right? And so it's, it's kind of about the way that you approach this. Um, and so the lion and gazelle are both using you know, if, if the lion is chasing a gazelle where they're both experiencing physiologic stress, right? Their, their, their systems are both activated, but, you know, clearly the experience is different. And so, you know, approaching a stressor as a challenge often kind of changes the way in which we kind of react and recover from that, um, which seems to be kind of a, a more adaptive way of dealing with stress, because, you know, one, we can't remove stressors out of our lives completely, but also stress is important. It's it's kind of motivating. It's it's part of kind of the lived experience. And so the way in which you interact with it and the way in which you kind of approach it mentally can be really important for both uh, your sleep as well as kind of your general physiology um, and your well-being. Yeah, right. And so um, I want to go back to that balloon analogy for a minute. Um, we talked about how adenosine can interfere with it filling up. Um, and one thing I've noticed over the years is that it feels like my balloon has sprung some leaks and <laughs> it doesn't fill up as efficiently or as fast as it used to. And you do mention at a couple points in the book that as people age, their sleep uh, worsens and their need for it lessens a little bit and you have some um, I won't get into, I don't think we have time to get into all the calendars, which I think are great tools. And I encourage people to look into those, but you, there's different um, 
relative numbers that people can use as they get older. And so I wonder if you have ideas about what's going on, you know, physiologically with that observation. Yeah, you know, that is actually one of the the really outstanding questions around sleep, you know, because we know, you know, we've certainly documented, you know, in, in kind of the epidemiology that, you know, it's the need for, or it, so we don't know if it's the need for sleep. We know that as people age, the amount of sleep they get seems to decline a little bit and, and the architecture changes. So there's more wakefulness throughout the night. Um, and some of this is potentially due to kind of having to use the bathroom. Some of it might be kind of comorbidities like chronic pain or kind of ongoing illness, things like that. But also there's a reduction in, in deep sleep that people tend to get. And it's not clear if, you know, it's because as we get older, it's, we don't need as much, or is it that, um, we do need more and there's maybe a need for intervention specifically around kind of older adults. And, you know, we, or is it something about how the brain is changing? And, and thankfully we're starting to get the tools to be able to really peer into the brain to understand what's going on. But, um, you know, honestly, we, we don't quite know yet. Yeah. I'll be interested to follow that research. I tend to take an evolutionary perspective on explaining those why questions. And so one thing I have been thinking about is that, you know, in, in most of human evolution, when we lived in small hunter gatherer bands, the younger folks with children and, you know, requirements for food gathering and hunting, they needed physical rest more than the older people who maybe didn't go out and gather and hunt who stayed with the children more. So maybe those older people were selected to need less sleep. Anyway, just a wild guess on my part. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a really interesting um, you know thing to consider. And, you know, if if that's the case, then, you know, maybe it's just part of the natural life course, right? And if that's true, then that's, you know, an important piece of education, because honestly, I get a lot of folks that come into our clinic that are in, you know, in kind of their sixth or seventh decade of life that are really, really concerned about the fact that they're sleeping less, right? And trying to understand if there's something to do about that, because they're worried about what it's going to mean for their brain. And, and, you know, if we had a better understanding of that piece, then we would have something to maybe allay some of those concerns. Right. And that kind of worry, as you also delve into in the book creates anxiety, which will then interfere with sleep. So if, if people could have a better understanding of what's going on in different times of their life, then that would facilitate some acceptance, which is also another part of the cognitive behavioral therapy that you um, explain in the book as well. So all these things I'm trying to highlight for potential readers. Um, and one last thing that I wanted to touch on, you mentioned that in your clinic and when you do experiments, you use um, sleep tracking devices like the Fitbits. I mean, people can't use um, obviously be wired up to brain recording machines at home. But what do you think about the the small portable devices like the Fitbits and the Aura Rings? Yeah, wearable devices, I mean, have, you know, kind of the, the boom in technology around sleep has really gotten people excited about kind of sleep because just in the population, which is really fun and exciting. Um, and, you know, I think it's uh, the technology is really advanced over time and it will continue to do so. I think these devices are pretty good, you know, at measuring kind of amount of sleep that people get and how fragmented their sleep is where, where it's lacking currently is really around kind of the sleep architecture. So, you know, deep sleep versus rapid eye movement sleep versus light or core sleep, 
all of those things um, are not really kind of up to the standards of what we would get kind of in in the laboratory using polysomnography, which is currently the gold standard for for measuring you know those those metrics. And so you know I, I do caution people against kind of reading too much into those metrics. Um, and and in fact, several years ago, uh, uh, someone coined the term orthosomnia, which is an insomnia that's developed because of wearable devices, because people get really kind of worried when they see that they're not getting any deep sleep. And that's just very unlikely and usually due to the device, not to the person. Right. Well, it sounds like you have quite a waiting list in your clinic. There's lots of people that are thinking about sleep and worried about sleep. And for those in the listening audience, I will uh, link to your book and your website, and um, hopefully they can get some more information. So thanks so much for talking this morning. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Eric Prather talking to me about his new book, The Sleep Prescription. In an easy-to-read format, the book presents a seven-day course showing you how to regain good quality sleep and the scientific rationale behind each step. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Susan Moran. This week's show is produced by yours truly and engineered by Shannon Young. Additional contributions from Shelley Schlender. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music by Coulter Wall, Sleeping on Blacktop. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and links to websites mentioned in the show. You can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.